We answer Reload members' questions on the NRA annual meeting and the fallout from recent mass shootings. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gatowski, also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can check out our membership options today if you want to support sane, sober, serious firearms journalism, uh, and you want to get exclusive access to hundreds, I believe, maybe at this point, uh, of pieces of content, reports, analysis pieces, so you can keep up with the latest on what's happening in the gun world. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. This is a special question and answer episode of the podcast. Uh, I've got contributing writer Jake Fogelman here with me today. How are you doing, Jake? I'm doing well, Steve. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, it's been obviously a very hard week for everyone uh, in the country, I would imagine, after yeah. this horrific massacre at an elementary school in Texas, which left 19 uh, students killed and two teachers. Um, the, one of the worst attacks on a school in American history. Um, and so we're going to be talking in part about the fallout from that, what can be done, uh, you know, to pre prevent these sorts of events in the future, what sort of policies are going to be pursued, uh, that, that kind of thing. And we've gotten several questions about that. Uh, and then obviously it's been, a, a, it was already going to be a busy week for guns in America as you had the ATF nomination, uh, com the confirmation for President Biden's ATF nominee happened on Wednesday and the, the NRA annual meeting is going to be happening over the Memorial Day weekend in, in Houston. So, uh, <clears throat> We, uh, we've got a bunch of questions from members. This is another perk of uh, being a member of the Reload is you actually get to ask the questions in these, these uh, episodes. You can also come on uh, the show if, if that's something that, that interests you. If you're a member, uh, one of my favorite uh, segments is when we have a Reload member on. But uh, why don't we start here with the first question. We've got uh, one from uh, Edward McNeely who's a reload member. And he says, how can I, as a gun owner, engage with those friends of mine who feel such grief and anger over events like Buffalo and uh, Uvalde? Um, there seems to be a general thrust that as a gun owner, I'm somehow complicit in this. Is there any way to uh, empathetically respond to these accusations or insinuations? Or is the best response not to engage at all? I worry I see ground in the public debate by not engaging but am I only making things worse if I do? Uh, so I, you know, I think that speaks to a feeling that a lot of gun owners get uh, in the aftermath of these shootings. You know, I know certainly I do, um, where you, you're not only taking in the horror of what happened, but also you're essentially being accused of being in cahoots with the, with the, the, the murderer uh, or being associated with him or being you know, wanting these things to happen. Like this is clearly something that is insinuated or directly said, even by our president, honestly, that was basically president Biden's accusation. Um, 
and it, it is hard, right? Uh, it's that's hard to deal with on top of what's already a, a horrific situation. Uh, I mean, I've, I mean, you even seen some of the parents being uh, attacked on social media for their uh, views on guns, you know, parents who just lost uh, an elementary school child uh, yeah. being attacked because they, uh, because of their political beliefs on, uh, on firearms as though, fi- as though gun owners want these things to happen or, or don't care that they do. Right. So I think that that really gets at w- one of the things, uh, one of the, w- what it's like to be, a gun owner or a gun rights advocate in the wake of uh, a horrible shooting like this. Um, but what, what do you think, Jake? What is the, what, I, I, what's the right response? Well, one thing for sure, as you said, that I totally agree with you on this is a very relatable phenomenon for a lot of gun owners. I think you just, as soon as someone you see the massive public, which is an understandable outcry because it is such a horrific yeah. incident that no one likes to see, but you, you, you feel this <laughs> impending sense that uh, I'm going to be somehow lumped in with this madman that just did committed this horrible crime. Um, yeah. So the first thing I would say to the gun owners out there that feel this type of thing is it, we uh, most of us understand um, the best thing you can do is just please be a good ambassador for gun ownership. I know a lot of people, obviously, no one likes to be put on the defensive with such horrible insinuations or accusations, um, but you really have to avoid some of the things that you sometimes see out there where gun owners get very defensive and um I don't know what the right word would be, but basically talk down to people that, I don't know, you're getting the facts wrong or how dare you, or you're not going to get my guns. I don't care how emotional you get. That's so counterproductive in situations like these. I I know it can be hard to not be uh, fired up when someone makes horrible insinuations about you as a, as a person Mm -hmm. that's done nothing wrong, but, but it's just so, so important to, to be a good ambassador, especially in moments like these, because it will only make it worse if you're seen as the heartless gun owner, who's just going to own the people that are, are, you know, trying or grappling with a, a horrible incident like this. Yeah. And I think that's a fair point to make. Emotions run high on both sides yeah. of the issue and in, in the wake of these. And you will get people uh, who say terrible things on, on the other side uh, um, as well. So, yeah, don't don't react. Try not to react that way. Um, I would say uh, as far as engaging, I probably would pick and choose the right yeah. moments to engage if there if there's actually something productive to come out of a conversation with somebody like, you know, for me, how I approach this is, um, you know, one, I'm not running out there trying to make political points, you know, immediately. I just find that uh, very distasteful. I I can understand the, why that happens um, on either side, uh, especially in our current uh, political climate, which is very polarized. Um, And, and, you know, there's a rush by, um, gun control advocates to try and uh, capitalize on what's happened, not necessarily because they, uh, you know, are are, uh, cruel or whatever. They honestly believe in their solutions. Uh, They honestly believe that's how you would stop these things from happening. And they also understand the political reality of of how uh, reactions to, to mass shootings go, which is that there's an immediate surge in support for passing new gun control policies, uh, which then wanes over time. So they have become accustomed to trying to take advantage of that immediately, even if it's, I mean, Senator Murphy was quite literally on the floor before 
you know, we even knew what had actually happened. Um, and that that's the reason why, because he genuinely believes that what he wants to do will help, not not just because he's a politician. So, uh, you know, but any, anyway, I think it's um, important to pick your uh, pick your 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 conversations here, you know. Yeah. Try and find areas where it's useful to say something. Um, don't try to dunk on other people. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, the, the, you can, uh, you could probably have some headway by just being um, calm and, and understanding towards the person that you're talking with. Obviously, if you're, you know, if you know the person, it's, it's, it can be easier to do that, or it could even be harder to do that, of course, yeah, sometimes, um, yeah, you know, depending on the circumstances, if you, how personal the attacks are, but, but, um, if you don't know the person, if it's some sort of public debate, uh, then it's, you know, engaging with somebody who is uh, clearly not making any sort of good faith argument uh, is is not likely to help uh, anyone. I think, you know, certainly you don't necessarily want to, uh, you know, as Edward was, was saying, like you don't want to just cede all of the um, conversation to uh, people operating in, in bad faith. Uh, so you want to be able to have rational conversations and give your honest uh, position on uh, why you own guns, why you view guns as a net positive instead of a net negative for society, what, how uh, you might so solve these problems. I, you know, I think the, we'll probably get into this more. There's obviously more questions that are going to be related to uh, these mass shootings, but uh, not any one policy is going to solve any of this, uh, is, is one thing I would keep in mind when you're making, uh, arguments, when you're discussing these events, like, cause the, the common thing to do on both sides is to just say that, uh, you know, like the president did that now he, he did admit that it wouldn't solve everything, but he's putting up assault and bans as though they would, uh, you know, be the solution to this um, near nearly on their own. And then you have, of course, uh, Ted Cruz and other Republicans are pointing to um, added school safety, like single entry points or uh, man traps like you have in a uh, like a jewelry store or something, a pawn shop. But uh, as and, the, you know, it's not to say that none of either of those things couldn't have an impact in theory, but they get treated as though they're obviously the only thing or the right thing, the, the, the magic switch that's going to fix everything. And that's, that's just not reality. Um, and so try to try to stay away from those kinds of uh, absolutist arguments is, is what I would encourage um, because they basically just play to people who already agree with you. Uh, anyway. Yeah, I think that's exactly um, right. It may not be the most satisfying answer, but you really just have to kind of pick your battles in this in the aftermath of these events. Just engage when there's when you think there's good faith and when you can appeal to one another's humanity, which I know can be tricky in our modern times mm -hmm. and on social media mm -hmm. when that doesn't seem to exist always. Um, but I think it does more harm than good when you try to engage with someone that is operating in bad faith. Um, it's just counterproductive yeah. at that point. And I, I would say engaging in social media fights is almost never productive, right? right. Uh, regardless of the circumstances. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> we all do it, I'm sure, from time to time. 
<clears throat> certainly I've done it myself and there's a there's a strong draw to do that uh, but um, it's, it's generally not going to help anyone um, and you know if you want to put your message out there that's one thing you know try to be respectful and put your message out through social media uh, without intentionally fighting other people uh, that's one way you could <clears throat> at least share your point of view without being combative or, or aggressive about it. Uh, that'll probably uh, have <laughs> give you a likely more likelihood of success in convincing people of your position at the very least. Uh, but what's what's the next question we got? Yeah, so uh, it's similar uh, on a, obviously on a related subject uh, from Reload member Kevin DeWalt. He asks, uh, what can the gun community, and he specifies, not the government, but the gun community, uh, begin doing to mitigate the potential of these horrific massacres? There's a lot of worthwhile energy put into pointing out why some legislation won't work. But unless the gun rights community starts proposing next steps and not vague solutions, the gun control advocates will continue to claim the moral high ground. Um, so he's basically asking, what can, how can gun owners be proactive um, so they're not constantly feeling like they're on the defensive um, in the aftermath of these shootings, which I think is a great question. It's obviously something a lot, I think a lot of people consider. And I think it is important for the gun community to at least have their own um, ideas. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know if there's going to be as uh, quick and easy as like a, a, a panacea policy solution that you sometimes see on the other side. But I think even something like a like a see something, say something model where you're you're very proactive and obviously, you know, time after time after time with these shootings, it comes out that, oh, there was this incident that happened beforehand and this incident bef that happened beforehand. Oh, he liked guns, but he also had some weird behavioral problems and he was starting to lash out and he was starting to, you know, have some angry outbursts and he had some run-ins with police. Um, and so one, just one quick thing you can do, not just as a gun owner, but just as a private citizen that might be listening is uh, sort of a see something, say something model. Um, just just be proactive ahead of these things because obviously, Obviously, time after time, we see there's a lot of red flag indicators that um, there might be something that's going to happen in these incidents. So, yeah, I think that's uh, that's one area where um, you probably see a lot of agreement among gun owners, which is to uh, more effectively use current law to try and uh, intervene with these potential sh shooters, uh, as you just mentioned there, uh, you know, obviously there's a, there's still vigorous debate over red flag laws in particular, sure. the uh, extreme risk protection orders and um, uh, whether or not those are uh, good policy is, is something that is still, uh, you know, debated among most gun, gun owners. Is, there's obviously significant support. You have people like David French. You've even had uh, the National Rifle Association and and Republican senators in <clears throat> in theory supporting the concept of red flag laws, but there's been a lot of dispute over how they've been drafted in practice um, in many blue states with concerns over you know how uh, how the process is initiated, who can actually file for. A red flag order, you know, as some states, it's much broader than others. Um, you know, generally speaking, it's family members or police or mental uh, mental health professionals or or school officials, um, which is which probably is a 
something that a lot of people would agree on with those standards, but some are some are looser than that. And, right. you know, people worry about abuse of the system. There not being enough safeguards sure. or if somebody files a false red flag order against you, there's concerns over, uh, you know, obviously these are temporary orders. So they're um, they're held to a lower standard of evidence than uh, something like a, you know, involuntary commitment. Right. Uh, potentially, or at least the process is easier for a red flag order than, than it is for involuntary commitment. Um, uh, but and then there's concerns over uh, that the fact that it's a lower evidentiary process and right. uh, it affects a constitutional right, of course. But uh, but, you know, as David, we just had a whole episode on the podcast about this last week um, about red flag laws and. Uh, David French made, uh, you know, his case, which is, is, you know, is a strong case. There's strong uh, counterpoints to it. But, uh, you know, we have similar uh, restraining orders for domestic violence incidents as well. Right. Uh, So, you know, and then there's obviously obviously the critique that all red flag orders do is take away somebody's guns. It doesn't necessarily make them less uh, dangerous. It doesn't, doesn't mitigate all of the risks they pose, but, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I would feel like, um, I don't know, I'm getting, I guess I'm getting on one specific policy question here. Right. That's uh, I'll try to give a couple more after this, but uh, my feeling is that you could mitigate a lot of these concerns. Um, and, and perhaps that's something that uh, Democrats and Republicans should be able to find solutions for the, these concerns seem like ones that are addressable to me. Um, while the policy seems, uh, you know, clear in how it at least could be utilized to stop mass shootings. Again, this is not another, it's another area where it's easy to say, well, just pass red flag laws, but they're not a foolproof solution all the time either. Buffalo shooting happened, even though he very clearly should have been red flagged. Um, he was evaluated but released without any further action taken against him. Um, and then he went on to buy his gun and commit a shooting. He may have, even if he had been red flag, he may have been able to obtain a gun illegally. Anyway, that's another critique of course, but uh, you know, I don't, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't make it harder for, for someone with those explicit warning signs based on things they have actually done. And there's evidence of, but, uh, but as far as uh, you know, what else can gun owners in particular do to address mass shootings or how, how to put forward policies to help prevent mass shootings? I mean, there's, um, you know, being, being proactive in your community is, is obviously one thing where um, if you know somebody who's having mental health struggles, like you said, you know, there are avenues to right. one, get them help but also ensure that they're not a threat to other people. Um, but, and you know, that, that could involve calling, uh, the police if there's a, if there's serious enough threat involved. Uh, and, and, you know, I think again, these are not, I don't think any of this is going to be some foolproof thing. That's always going to prevent every shooting right. because it's not easy to necessarily pick the handful of people out of, 340 million who are going to, uh, who's, who's, you know, uh, acting out is going to end in a mass 
killing event, right? Right. But but yeah, I think um, proactivity, actually trying to follow through on somebody who's exhibiting the kind of warning signs, uh, you know, this because you're right, we hear about it all the time with these cases where somebody does this and it turns out that there were a lot of warning signs and maybe they were just weren't acted on or weren't put together into a pattern by anyone um, and nothing was done to, and they end up having no disqualifying criminal record when they go to buy their guns, even if they had a number of incidents that had they been taken to uh, their, you know, uh, the the fruition of pros, you know a prosecution or a, a commitment, the person would not have been able to legally buy guns. But yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's there's also a good point in there about um, if, if there's no coherent response from the the gun rights community for, for these events, then it does leave it uh it does make it seem as though the only people offering real solutions are the the gun control advocates um yeah. and, and so that is a that is a real danger i think in the public perception uh you know you have to come up with solutions that are actually going to have an impact um and and be able to explain why things like total categorical bans on types of guns aren't going to be a, a successful intervention. Um, which again, you can, you know, the, just as ratted flag laws were not used in the New York shooting, uh, there wasn't, there is an assault weapons ban in New York and he bought a New York legal AR and then modified it illegally. So, right. uh, you know, and- obviously those solutions aren't panaceas either. Right. And just, you know, another thing similar to being proactive doesn't necessarily even have to do with guns or, or involving, you know, red flag orders right. is just a lot of these folks are people that live in communities where people are aware of these people in the communities. Um, they realize that they're sometimes ostracized and lonely. Um, and sometimes, you know, just be a good neighbor, you know, reach out to people, uh, yeah. <clears throat> you know, just person to person type stuff. You don't even have to involve the gun necessarily. Um, just be be aware notice if, if people in your orbit are feeling seeming like they're in crisis do what you can to reach out um a lot of that stuff could be helpful as well um again not a panacea but you know yeah. it's better than than not doing anything right absolutely i mean yeah that is one problem with the framing of the question i guess is like what are gun owners supposed to do well it's you know it's uh, it's not just gunners i understand what he what he means yeah. of course but but yeah, I mean, like you look at these, a lot of these shooters and it's clear that they had uh, very little f- support from their community or their families were, uh, you know, they come from broken families that where things were not going well. The shooter's mother was, there's reports about drug use and uh, no reports about his father. There's all reports about bullying and, you know, poor relations with other people. You know, these are common things that you hear, which are sort of a societal level issue uh of course not everyone who you know again these are like not everyone who's had a rough childhood uh, or bad family situation is going to certainly the vast vast majority of people like that are not going to end up being mass shooters but but yes i mean uh, you know taking a, a societal health approach towards 
the situation is legitimate as well, even if, again, it's not some uh, scalpel-like, you know, precision to addressing the issue of, of particular mass shooters. But, you know, the, there's, I don't think it's illegitimate to talk about the, the broken backgrounds of, of people who often end up um, carrying out these sorts of attacks. Sure. Um, as being a contributing factor and one that is not a specific policy um, suggestion, but is more of a cultural or societal uh, solution. Right. But uh, anyway, <clears throat> it's amazing when you do a podcast um, or TV or whatever, how you can go from like having no issues uh, <clears throat> and talking perfectly. And then the more you talk, the more you have to <laughs> cough and Oh yeah, uh, it's, it's always like that. But I'll I'll, I'll give the uh, the next question here. This one comes from Doug Jefferson, who's the vice president of the National African American Gun Association, um, and he asks, "What efforts, if any, have you seen regarding strengthening enforcement of current laws and processes that could prevent tragedies like what occurred in Buffalo, uh, for example, in both Charlestown, uh, no, sorry, Charleston and San Antonio church shootings?" The assailants were able to legally purchase firearms because disqualifying factors had not been properly reported, resulting in uh, charges not showing up on their background checks. Right. So this is uh, this goes hand in hand with what we were just talking about. Right. right. Uh, one of the things that's uh, key in these situations is that, like, you can talk about red flag laws and we can debate the drawbacks and the, the positives of them. Uh, and you could make a case for how uh, they should have been employed in at the very least the Buffalo shooting, potentially the, the elementary school shooting, um, given there were reports that he was cutting himself and uh, was, uh, you know, had, had domestic violence threats and, uh, you know, uh, some other warning signs for this attack. But the, the bottom line is if nobody does anything about that, um, it doesn't really matter what laws you have in place. Right. Right. Uh, so, so the key here is people have to be willing to actually say something and, and actually file, you know, police have to be willing to file charges. Um, but the, of course there's drawbacks to that approach too, because I, oftentimes the reason you wouldn't get uh, serious charges is because the idea is to not ruin someone's life over a single incident or something like that. And, right. and so there's obviously trade-offs to uh, extremely strict, no exceptions enforcement of, uh, of things that, you know, the elementary school shooter, right? He, yeah, he had told a friend that he had showed up and a friend saw that he was cutting himself or he cuts on his face. And he said he did it himself. That's a, you know, that friend probably should have uh, intervened in some way, um, you know, reported it to school officials or, or whatever might have been the case. But, you know, you're talking about somebody who's also a kid um, and, and putting that responsibility on them. Yeah. And it, it's difficult. Like you're it's easy to look back in hindsight and say, well, there's these warning signs. And sometimes they are very bright warning signs. Right. Uh, they're very red, red flags. Uh, like Parkland had multiple incidents. A lot of these guys have multiple incidents. And so somebody at some point would do something like you, 
it makes sense. But uh, but at the same time, it's it's easy to look back with 2020 vision and say, well, we know of this one incident that is a warning sign. It should have been he should have been committed or or uh, arrested or charged on uh, based on this. Um, when in real life, people aren't, you know, often going to be uh, given the harshest punishments for a first offense right. or, or a first warning sign does not, because most of the time that doesn't mean that you're going to actually, uh, it's such a small likelihood that somebody who has a, a particular warning sign is going to actually end up being a mass killer. Right. Um, that it's one thing you have to keep in mind is that when you're, when you're saying we need to fully, prosecute every warning sign or push it to the the very uh most severe reaction to every red flag or warning sign you're talking about doing that to millions of people who are not going to end up uh committing uh, any kind of violent crime let yep. alone a mass killing so th this is one of the things that i think people have to keep in mind there's trade-offs to all of this um but, but uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I, like, I don't want to get too pessimistic about it right. Right? and say there's nothing. I don't like saying there's nothing that can be done or these are inevitable or there's no way we could reduce this. Um, I, I just uh, want people to understand that it's not there isn't uh, one magic trick like you see in the, the viral ads. Right. Yeah. Um, that's just going to fix all this. There's trade offs to all of these things. And um, I and you have to be able to understand those trade-offs and make the calculation of whether or not you're willing to make those trade-offs, I, I guess think that's is, a, is my point. I think that's a huge point because he brings up, for example, things like the Charleston or the San Antonio, Antonio shooting um, or even Parkland that you brought up where, yeah, there's recurring um, indicators in these people's past. In the cases of Charleston and San Antonio, there were actual disqualifying, according to the 4473 events that happened in this past. But in order to make sure that, you know, that safety net catches uh, those disqualifying events, you would have to uh, be willing to enable a lot more law enforcement sharing of information, um, much more bureaucratic sharing of information. And, you know, that it's kind of interesting how this can kind of cross cut different ways politically where folks who may not be so keen on maybe boosting law enforcement's ability to monitor more things um, are also looking for more solutions to stop these mass shootings. And so the trade-offs thing is key here where it's, you have to weigh the interests. Do we think this is going to help prevent these shootings? Um, are we willing to, to give up, you know, you know, privacy or whatever your concern may be um, in order to make that happen? Um, so that's why he asks if there's any efforts that we've seen. You see it get talked about, but I don't think there's been any like real effort because these trade-offs are hard, as you said. Um, and we, like you said, we don't want to be pessimistic, but these are real trade-offs to consider. Yeah. Um, and that's why we are where we are. Yeah. I mean, it's, I wish there was an easy solution yeah. to everything, right? Yeah. I mean, we all wish there was, and that's why people gravitate towards somebody telling them there is an easy solution, right? Uh, just ban all the guns. Uh, well, look, you know, uh, even if you ban all new gun sales tomorrow, you still have so many firearms in the United States that it's not going to like, you know, trying to trying to use ban all guns as a solution to mass shootings is 
you know, the most broad possible policy you could come up with, like just make sure no one can own guns because uh, there are a very small number of people who will carry out, uh, you know, a sort of a mass attack like this with them. Um, of course, we still see mass killings, uh, even mass shootings in other countries that have total gun bans. This, this is not something that never happens anywhere else um, as much as that, uh, you know, might be a talking point. You, know, you do see these events all over the world. Um, uh, you know, whether they're more frequent in the United States is, is uh, obviously uh, uh, something that is, is potentially the case, but but, uh, you know, I've, there's also been dispute. There's uh, it was a 2018 study that that concluded that they aren't more frequent in the United States. I mean, these are rare events statistically. Of course, nobody wants to hear that in the immediate aftermath of 19 children being murdered because, you know, everyone cares more about never having it happen at all. But um, and which is an absolutely reasonable response to a slaughter like that. Um, and makes it difficult to, that, that's, that's the thing is like the, the natural, um, understandable response to something like this is very emotional because it's such a horrific event, but, um, and so it makes it difficult to, to say, well, let's look back, let's step back and look at the, the statistics on this. Right. Um, and, oh, well, this is actually fairly rare. It's only the third, uh, you know, mass shooting of the year or, you know, where for mass shooting being four or more people killed in a single incident uh, uh, like this. But it's, um, you know, that, that's not going to win over a lot of people when you, when you start talking about it, just because it's such a horrible event that everyone wants it to be zero times. Um, and so people are willing to consider all sorts of solutions and and they're willing to listen to people who will tell them that there's an easy fix, even if there isn't. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, that's, uh, I think that's perhaps the driving point of my whole overarching thought here that, that I keep coming back to, I suppose, is, is just like, there are things that can be done. I believe that there are things that can be done to reduce the number of these events and try and stop people who show warning signs that they're going to happen, that they're going to carry something like this out. But I just don't, uh, I just go back to like, there isn't going to be one single thing that fixes everything. Maybe the, maybe the single entry is a smart uh, policy for school safety. And I'm, I know that schools use it. Maybe arming teachers uh, who want to be armed if they've gone through the proper training is a good idea. I've done, the armed teacher training course, um, part of it in Colorado, um, you know, <laughs> teaching police to respond properly to these events. We're hearing now that they waited between 40 minutes and an hour before they went in to after this shooter, which is insane. Um, given what we've known since Columbine, right. uh, you know, did parents urge them to go in? And they, they didn't for some reason. It's not clear why that things happened that way. As eerily similar to Parkland and Columbine, uh, sadly. Um, but 
you know, uh, so you could you, that better training for police, better understanding of what to actually do in a situation like this is something that can help. Um, but not, you know, uh, perhaps, you know, red flag laws might be another solution. Um, you know, you, you could, uh, certainly you saw Florida take uh, the approach of limiting the age of, uh, ownership for, um, basically AR-15s and, and similar firearms. Uh, you might even see Texas do something like that. I'm sure New York probably will. I think you're going to write a, a piece looking at those possibilities. Who knows? Maybe that has an effect. I don't, I don't, I don't know that it will, but, uh, you know, Colin, the, you can point to any number of mass shootings where the weapon was not an AR-15 um, and, and just restricting the ownership of the, a particular style of rifle is probably not going to be something that actually solves the problem, even if it was the rifle that has been used in a number of high profile mass shootings. But, but yeah, I just get, I just keep going back to this idea that it's, you're not going to get one policy that's going to fix all of this. Um, yeah. And, and some of it's beyond, you know, policymaking, like we talked about with uh, the social um, factors at play, but uh, all right. Um, I've made a little bit of a uh, rambling rant there, but uh, but let's uh, let's go on to the next question here. Um, uh, this one's from Nathan, who uh, who was very uh, articulate. Um, he's uh, he's got a great vocabulary here, but uh, he says or he asks, given the the dichotomy between fevered political lobbying in the immediate wake of a crisis and likewise rapid retrospectives demonstrating systemic and legal inefficiency, um, how can we as a society, and you, and me and you, Jake, as media, have metered and rational analysis while still mitigating the impact of uh, the resulting media contagion? So uh, let me just uh, give people the concept of media contagion here. There, there is a theory that uh, mass shootings happen uh, in clusters, uh, as we've seen with these most recent ones, uh, and that part of the motivation there involves uh, media attention on the shooters themselves, that um, talking more about the shootings and the shooters can actually inspire other people to carry out similar attacks. Um, and so he's saying like, how can you cover this, have rational conversation about what's going on and look at, uh, you know, policy effects or solutions to the problem without increasing the likelihood that it's going to, inspire somebody else to do the same thing. Um, and, uh, you know, we had uh, a while back last year, uh, I have Professor James Allen Fox from uh, Northwestern University on who he tracks mass shootings for the Associated Press and, and for Northwestern. And, um, you know, he, contagion theory, I, I will say, is a, at least somewhat controversial concept. Um, that sort of uh, raising the awareness of the 
fact that somebody can carry out an attack like this makes people who are vulnerable to do so more likely to actually follow through on the, their, their desire or their thought uh, of, of committing a mass killing. Um, and, and some people connect this with uh, um, the, the impulse to, uh, this is basically a, like a suicidal impulse, uh, but where somebody doesn't have, have there, there's a strong shame uh, culture against suicide. And so instead they carry out uh, some horrific attack that's likely to result in their death. This is a, you know, this is one of the theories for why these things happen. I, um, and so the more somebody in that state of mind sees uh, that this, that somebody else has done this, the more likely they are to do it themselves. That's the, the concept. Uh, I don't, uh, James Allen Fox was uh, dismissive of this idea he, he, and the idea that mass shootings are clustered together um, you know, his, his claim is that isn't necessarily true that the, you know, sometimes the, these events might happen, um, in, in quick succession. But if you look at the, uh, long history of mass shootings, you, you don't actually see, uh, much correlation in terms of the timing of them. Right. So, uh, but, uh, you know, other people, there've been studies that show there is an effect. So, it's it's a it's a open question. Uh, there's a lot of obviously open questions about mass shootings because because uh, they're shocking, but they're also statistic, again statistically uh, rare form of gun violence in the United States. Um, they make up a very small percentage of the number of people killed in in uh, the country each year. But but um, I don't know. The, it's a good question. If you believe in contagion theory, how do you talk about this responsibly without contributing to the problem itself? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, one thing you can do is avoid uh, notoriety for the shooter as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, we, tr we, we, uh, I've made it a policy here to only name a shooter when absolutely necessary for the story. Yeah. Um, so basically in the, immediate aftermath um like uh when the and and look we don't cover mass shootings as they break most of the time because uh we're a very small outlet who focuses on national gun policy not and everybody covers mass shootings there's not really generally much we can add to uh the the coverage in the vast majority of situations um but uh, but otherwise, when we're talking about mass shooters, we 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 prefer not to name them. I don't I don't find a, a very good reason to name a, you know a mass shooter in reporting beyond the very basic initial reporting about uh, who the suspect was or trying to get information about their background and and so forth. I, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Jake? Yeah, I was going to say this comes back to a similar cultural and society thing, which is tough to have a silver bullet solution for because it just takes individual agency to make that concerted effort to not one not avoid over glorifying the shooter by digging into all these extraneous details um you saw a lot of really bizarre rumors being spread about who the shooter was on social media i'm not really going to get into it just because it was totally bunk but basically avoiding that impulse 
is what's going to be necessary because that only drives so much more focus on things that don't matter. Um, and, and as you said, you want metered and rational analysis. And I hope that that we've come across is trying to do that in, in cases like this, where this is obviously a complicated scenario that requires really thoughtful, measured response. Um, so mm -hmm. that's another thing is just lead by example, do your part, don't contribute to the, to the mayhem that inevitably will happen, uh, to a certain extent. Um, and that's, it's really all you can do is just do your part and don't, don't, uh, reward people that do it the other way, essentially, but with your intention, with your clicks, with your engagement. Uh, that would be my suggestion. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I honestly don't know if not naming the shooters helps or not. Um, you know, I don't know if, you know, the, the fame gained by these, uh, these, these people is a motivating factor. Sometimes you'll, you'll get some shooters that say it is, of course, what shooters say about why they do things should also be questioned of right. course um you know there, there's you know the the buffalo shooter for instance talked about specifically targeting a town in new york because of the, the loose gun laws right which is a common uh you know point you hear uh, on the right about uh, in the gun owning community about mass shootings that they they target soft targets right but but then he also targeted a store that had an armed security guard which he knew so there's a lot of contradictions. And then you, you read through his, his ramblings, which I did to, I, usually I do not, but I did in that case to understand how he had modified his gun because I wanted to, there was a lot of reporting on that and I wanted to actually understand what it was because the reporting wasn't very clear on what he had done. But, but uh, you know, you, you can see all sorts of contradictory nonsense in there. That's a lot of it was just copy and pasted from other manifestos or online ramblings there's a lot of racist memes from 4chan and, right. and so forth like uh, oftentimes what a shooter wants you to believe about why they're doing something doesn't isn't necessarily actually uh getting at the core of, of why they did something it's just but anyway you know i i prefer to err on the side of caution to not give um the person any more notoriety than they deserve which is of course none um, right. So only when it's absolutely necessary to a story will will we name uh, one of these shooters. Uh, you know, so whether that helps prevent other shootings, I don't know. But I don't see a good journalistic reason beyond the initial phase to name these people um, and uh, potentially contribute to uh, their infamy or their fame. So. Yeah. That's that's why we have that policy. But um, all right. Uh, next question here. Uh, and this is uh, Doug Jefferson again from uh, National African-American Gun Association. And he asks, uh, what effect, if any, do you think the recent mass shootings will have on uh, the Supreme Court case, uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin? Uh, this is the the major gun carry case that the Supreme Court is considering right now, um, whose opinion we're expecting uh in any day really it could be monday right. um it wasn't this monday uh they announced their opinions on monday and when they're in session which is which is what they're doing now so it could certainly be monday i, I don't know how things work at the court if they yeah i was gonna say i uh, don't know that it affects the decision maybe maybe they'll push the release of it maybe a week or two just to kind of get it out of the 
because you know judges are human uh so right in, in terms of uh the the decision i i don't this is pure speculation obviously because i'm not in the room with these decision makers but i don't think it necessarily affects the decision at all um yeah and so that, that it's hard to know what's going on inside the supreme court because it's yeah. uh, generally speaking a very um tight tight-lipped place yeah no one leaked anything to us so <laughs> yeah i mean obviously that's that's changed a little bit with uh the the abortion ruling that yeah. got leaked but um yeah we, we uh, certainly they could move when they would release this i if they uh, i would think that they would want to move it not do it monday given right. the circumstances in the country um i don't know that it'll have any impact on the outcome of the case i mean certainly yeah. this case didn't have anything to do with what happened in the um in the buffalo or the the texas shootings uh they didn't involve gun carry it wasn't a question of uh you know whether or not these attackers had concealed carry licenses or, or whatever um so the the legal question is is not really relevant to uh to the events but obviously it's gun related uh second amendment related and it's going to be controversial because of that, regardless of what the outcome is. Yeah. And I don't know that the court wants to, I'd be surprised if the court released it on Monday, uh, you know, maybe they'll wait a week or two weeks or, right. or, or whatever, just to get some, some distance from, from this horrific event. Um, uh, and so that they're not creating new controversy around it immediately. So, that's the effect I could see it having, like like you said. Um, all right, uh, now let's move on uh, to a little bit of uh, NRA related uh, questions, or some of our NRA related questions that we've gotten. Sure. Um, this one comes from uh, a Reload member named Christy, uh, and she asks, "We know the NRA is in turmoil, but unless readers and listeners have actually tried to work with." Their standard service divisions in the last year, whether it's membership, education, competitions, clubs, uh, they may not realize how decimated the staff and services have truly become. These are all divisions that historically have played a role in supporting a robust and engaged pro-Second Amendment culture between major political fights. With these services unraveling, membership dropping, and staff who spent their time focusing on engaging the grassroots gun rights community ousted in the last few years. Where do you see NRA's place in helping to mobilize any grassroots political response to new gun control proposals after these high profile shootings? That's a really good question. It is. Yeah. Um, because she's right. They've, the NRA has cut staff dramatically. Uh, now, most of that came during the pandemic when they laid off hundreds of people. Um, but they haven't rehired most of those people. Uh, and so there's, it is, for, on a, in a practical sense, a much smaller organization than, than it used to be. Uh, you know, obviously, we had that internal financial report that we published last year that showed their revenues and spending are both half of what they used to be in 2018. Um, and so the organization is struggling significantly and their membership has fallen significantly. And given the fact that they have cut a lot of the services that members really value from the NRA, um, 
you know, it, it's hard to see how they're going to climb out of that hole very right. quickly or easily, especially with the New York case still pending over their head, um, which very well could result in not only the ouster of their leadership uh, and Wayne LaPierre and, and other members of uh, NRA leadership, but uh, could also see the, a court appointed uh, overseer at the end of it. Those are very likely outcomes for that case. Um, not It's not inevitable or the only possible outcomes, but they're highly likely. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard to see how they're going to be able to re-engage people and grow again. Uh, but I will say, uh, and, and, you know, so certainly that has an impact on their ability to mobilize people at the grassroots level. Uh, like the NRA's ability to mobilize people is impacted. But yeah. what I will say is that the NRA is also going to benefit from uh, the fact that they are the shorthand for gun owners in, in politics in America. Right. Um, and so instead of the NRA mobilizing people, gun owners and grassroots uh, res, uh, pushback to potential new gun regulations, it'll probably be the other way around where pe gun owners are going to be motivated to join the NRA because of those things. And one thing I would look for is whether or not the NRA announces uh, substantial new membership signups, uh, because that's going to be significant to probably giving you a really good metric on how far gone the organization really is. Yeah. Um, if they do not see a significant surge in membership in the uh, coming month or two, uh, as these fights play out, um, at the state and federal level over what to do about the, you know, these, these horrific shootings, then that could tell you a lot about how gun owners perceive the NRA now. Um, and would be, if they do not receive hundreds of thousands of new, uh, members, that's a sign that, uh, they may never fully recover. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Uh, I don't have a ton to add to that because I think that it, that is the key. We obviously we've obtained financial documents in the past and done some in-depth reporting on it. And what you see is obviously election years are big, but also years that coincide with high profile mass shootings. You see spikes in their membership numbers. Um, but over the last few years, that's also coincided with scandals, very public scandals, a lot of distrust in the gun community. So I think that that's going to be the big indicator here is if. We're heading into a midterm election year, plus two really high-profile mass shootings, and if that doesn't galvanize support for the NRA, you know that's kind of that's kind of a big indication of where they're at. Yeah, I mean, they should have been gaining members last the last two years because of the surging new gun ownership, and they right. haven't. Right. Um, but now, you know, this is a moment where guns are going to be at the center of politics, uh, and there's going to be a significant push to pass new gun legislation at the state and federal level. And if that doesn't uh, increase their roles, then I don't know what ever would. You right. know what I mean? Um, uh, that's just from a practical standpoint like that. This is what what people join the NRA for. And if right. they're not joining it after uh, uh, after this event and, and given the kind of political pushback that's going to happen 
uh, you know, the kind of political push for gun restrictions, then, you know, uh, how, how does the NRA, how can anyone justify the idea that they're going to rebound and grow again? Yeah. Uh, at least not until, not without a massive shift in the organization. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's what that's what you'd want to look for, and and the NRA if it's happening the NRA the NRA sorry if it happens if they do grow if they do get a lot of new members the NRA will tell everyone it's oh, not yeah. going to be a secret oh yeah uh, if they don't say anything that's when you know right that they're they're not growing mm -hmm. okay um, the next two questions here Christy has a follow up and then Cody Claxton has a question they're and they're somewhat related so we'll we'll try to tackle them together here uh, so Cody says. <clears throat> to be more effective at firearms rights lobbying, wouldn't it make sense to pull together the gun rights groups into a coalition to be more effective and coordinate uh, talking points and focus? Uh, you know, um, and then, so he's talking about groups like uh, Firearms Policy Coalition, Gun Owners of America, VCDL, Virginia Citizens Defense League, um, the Crime Research uh, uh, Center. Um, and, then, and then he also asked, what's the future of NRA uh, Institute for Legislative Action. Can it be reorganized into another organization? And then Christie's question is uh, about the rise of non-NRA groups, those same sort of groups that Cody mentioned, um, as well as uh, you know some non-political groups like uh, Steel Challenge to fill the the the, the void left behind by the NRA sh uh, shrinking. Right. So. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I guess uh, should should the smaller gun groups try to work together in order to replace or fill the gap left behind by the NRA? <clears throat> sorry, by the NRA's um, uh, recent uh, shrinking, I guess. Uh, and you know, is that even possible? Is are they uh, do, are they big enough to replace the NRA or right. at least fill in? what's been lost recently i was uh, yeah that's a good question go ahead yeah i was gonna say we kind of discussed about this a little bit because you see this tend to come up from time to time whenever there's a new story about something going on at the nra um there's the thing is these gr these groups are active and a lot of them are growing in yeah. um, their presence they just and there's just no one yet that can match the behemoth that is the NRA at its peak. You know, um, mm -hmm. a lot of these groups do a lot of work. They're very active, especially in litigation. But no one matches the NRA's combination of litigation, education, uh, outreach, competition, gun, uh, the museum that they operate. It's just they're just ubiquitous in the firearm space where a lot of these groups tend to be much more specialty groups, much smaller donation wise uh, in terms of the revenue that they take in. So, I mean, as of right now, it's just not, there's just not a, a model yet, I think, to replace the NRA. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's the bottom line that people, and I think a lot of people don't even really understand this fully. Um, the NRA at its peak was a $400 million organization. Yeah. Uh, most of these other groups that that we've mentioned there, uh, and they've been growing, so we'll you know reserve some judgment. Yeah, uh, we haven't seen their <clears throat> 2021 uh, tax filings that would give you that indicate how big they are. But most of them are most of them aren't breaking into you know the the seven figure or sorry eight. eight they're most of them aren't breaking into the eight figure mark. Uh, so most of them are under $10 million a year. 
organizations uh, or have been historically. Uh, and then, you know, none of them that I'm aware of break like $20 million in revenue per year in, in any of the filings I've ever seen for these groups. So they're really not comparable in size. And, and you know, the staff wise, they're nowhere near the NRA was a 500 person organization in terms of staff. And then and then, of course, you have uh, membership and nobody comes anywhere near the NRA in terms of membership. Uh, nobody's in terms of dues paying members, people who pay you to be part of the organization, nobody comes anywhere near the five uh, million. Uh, what was the peak they had? I think in that, in the document that we found, it was like 5.25 or something, right. something along yeah, those lines. Over 5 million. Over 5 million, but it was never near six, despite some of the claims the yeah. NRA had made. Um, but, you know, that no one else is probably even near a million, uh, even close, you right. know, and that, that includes uh, organizations on the other side of the issue too. Every town or March for Our Lives or whatever. None of them have. No, that's right. Have the the size that the NRA has, and yeah, the scope is also another issue. Like uh, Second Amendment Foundation or FPC have done a lot of uh, legal work in the Second Amendment space. Sometimes the NRA has even taken credit or tried to take credit for the the cases that you know they've won. Uh, the Second Amendment Foundation in particular, but but um, you know that that's all. That's like their main thing. Right. They don't really have a, a neither of them have a built out network of instructors, for instance, or uh, competition shooting or youth shooting programs or anything remotely like that. Most of them, they don't have lobbying campaigns that are nationwide at the in every state. Right. right. Um, GOA has started to do a little more in terms of uh, actual state level lobbying, uh, but even still, they're they're in a limited number of states right. um, and historically weren't, weren't doing as much on that front, uh, uh, you know, and they're, they're doing legal suits as well, but nobody, nobody comes anywhere close to matching the NRA, uh, even with the growth that they've seen um, in recent years. And so it's difficult to see them with the NRA still around and still bringing in, you know, $200 million a year, whatever it might be these days, um, it's unlikely that any other group is going to rise up to match that level uh, because they still have to compete with the NRA for most of the money. And the NRA is still probably several times larger than all these other groups combined. Um, and, and so uh, <laughs> that's one thing that I think a lot of people miss about the NRA situation. You see right. every, people who uh, are critical of the NRA and critical of the corruption and, um, you know, the, perhaps are convinced that there's no way that they can help fix the problems and through the internal reform efforts. Uh, a lot of them just kind of give up on the organization and, and say, well, I'll join one of these other organizations and the NRA is useless and doesn't matter. That's not true. I mean, unfortunately for, for people who hold that, that position, it's just not the case. Right. Uh, the NRA, yeah, there was a lot of, uh, Corruption that's already been admitted to, frankly, to you know millions of dollars worth of funds being um, misappropriated, uh, and the allegations are for tens of millions more. But uh, you know that gra graft was happening on top of an organization that legitimately was doing a lot of uh, significant work and still does, frankly. 
to be to be you know honest it's not uh, it's not that the nra doesn't do anything anymore uh uh either so but, um but you know could a coalition of all these groups come together and reach uh, some level of of uh effectiveness that the former nra had you know five years ago or whatever right um maybe um the problem there is that a lot of them are litigation specialists. And so you're just yeah. like, you're asking seven different litigation organizations to form one. Whereas, as we just talked about, right. the scope of the NRA's operations include litigation, but go so far beyond that. Um, so I, that's why I think it's not as plausible for these pro other prominent groups that you're probably aware of to join forces. They collaborate on lawsuits yeah. all the time. You see that. Sure. Happen lawsuits. Yeah, absolutely. But, but they're not you're not branching off to form will be the training component and will be the litigation shop right. and will be the lobbying arm. And there's nothing the, like that going on. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, so no, I don't think that there, if the NRA went away completely tomorrow. Yeah. My guess is that something would spring up in its place. Yeah. Um, and, and, and maybe it would be a mixture of a number of groups, but, but that that's, but that's not the reality of today. Yeah. Uh, and it's not likely the NRA is not likely to go away anytime soon, even, even if Wayne LaPierre got removed and the, you know, the New York case went completely against them, it's unlikely that they would end as an organization, although they are burning money uh, uh, and making cuts to services at a yeah. pretty un unsustainable rate. But, but yeah, I mean, um, and, and, you know, I think it's also, even with these other groups doing a lot of good lit litigation and having success, um, I think FPC and F SAF just had a, a successful case in California about the the age restrictions uh, on long guns there or on the you know AR-15 style of firearms, uh, which is going to be very relevant moving forward uh, in the aftermath of these shootings. But uh, but you know the NRA's that Supreme Court case that's an NRA case that's right. uh, one of their state affiliates, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association. That's an NRA case. So. Um, you know, they're not gone. They are weakened. They're not, uh, uh, but none of these groups are in a position to fully replace them. And I don't know that any of them would even claim to be in a position right. yeah. to do that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, but I think, again, it goes back to like the NRA is, is a powerful and significant organization, but they're not the be all and end all when it comes to gun ownership in America. So even if they don't see uh, that rebound in membership and uh, increase in influence that you, they would normally see when there's big pushes for new gun control. It's not clear to me that that new gun control, especially at the federal level, is actually going to succeed anyway. Because, I mean, you know, Tester or, you know, Tester from Montana, Manchin from West Virginia, uh, King from Maine, they're, it's not the NRA. It's not like some fealty to the NRA that they that they're sh showing when they uh, oppose strict new gun uh, control bills. It's the fact that they have a lot of constituents who are, oppose these ideas, whether or not they're NRA members is is a secondary question. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't want to underplay the NRA's influence or whatever, but it's gun owners influence is beyond what what the NRA's is. That's absolutely right. As much yeah. as as much as they've become the shorthand for gun owners. Yeah in America, like the reality is even when they uh, are politically weakened, it doesn't necessarily mean that gun owners are politically uh, weakened overall. But 
yeah, I mean, is that, that that's that makes sense to you, Drake? Yeah, no, that's the gist of it. I think that's also a good point to hit on the the fact that the NRA isn't a stand-in for all gun owners writ large because you do see that every single time. Um, so it's worth reemphasizing yep. that point. But uh, th- that is all the questions we have for this week. We really appreciate you guys, uh, our members, sending in some very smart questions. Honestly, some very thought-provoking stuff in there. I, hopefully, we've done a good job in, in responding to them um, uh, in, in the best way possible. But uh, I think that's it for this week. Uh, if you want to become a member, you should head on over to the Reload. Actually, uh, we're going to be doing a Memorial Day sale. So you can get um, a 20% off on a membership. We don't do these sales very often. So, uh, you know, make sure you take advantage of that opportunity. Most, we haven't had a sale in, I don't know, so since last year, I think. So, uh, you know, they don't come around very often. Make sure you grab up a membership at a discount while you can. Uh, but we really appreciate you guys tuning in. If you've made it this far in the episode, I'd, would really love to ask you to share the show with anyone you think would might be interested uh, and to leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or, or whatever app you're listening to us on or give us a, thumb up, a thumbs up and subscribe on YouTube as well where you can you know watch the show if you want to see our faces during this conversation. But uh, that's it for this week. We will see you guys again next week.